Hello and welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast. I'm your host, Nigel Palmer. And on today's action-packed show, we are talking to Maya from the Nottingham Amphibian and Reptile Group, finding out about our native amphibians and reptiles and why tow patrols are so important. And of course, today is St. Valentine's Day, so Wildlife Matters looks into the bizarre world of courting and mating in wildlife around the world and discover what your partner is saying with their Valentine's gifts. And that's all coming up right after we hear from our partners at One Voice for Animals. Exciting news! Wildlife Matters has formed a partnership with the fabulous folk at One Voice for Animals. Our partnership aims to raise awareness of the work of the many independent rescues that are part of the One Voice for Animals family. One Voice for Animals works to create awareness of the work of rescue organisations all around the UK to provide practical support that is raising standards for animal rescues and helping them to raise the vital funds that they need. The One Voice for Animals directory is the place to go to find your local animal rescue, be that for companion or wild animals. And collectively, One Voice for Animals works to influence UK animal welfare issues on behalf of their member organisations and is a member of APGOR, the all-parliamentary group for animal welfare. For more information, please visit the One Voice for Animals website. Their website address is www.helpanimals.co.uk. And just in case you've missed that, get your pen and papers ready. The website address is www.helpanimals.co.uk. Now let's get back to the Wildlife Matters podcast. now I'm delighted to introduce you to Maya, who is currently at university in her second year of wildlife conservation and already has a wealth of knowledge about amphibians and reptiles. Maya is part of the Nottinghamshire Amphibian and Reptile Group, where she helps run their tow patrols. I know you will enjoy this and, like me, learn so much from my chat with Maya when we caught up recently. Wildlife Matters podcast and today we've got a guest with us. Her name is Maya and she's from Knots ARG and she's going to talk to us today about amphibians and reptiles and tow patrols. So hi Maya, nice to speak to you. Hello. Thank you so much for coming on with us today and we're really excited to find out more about amphibians and reptiles but what was it that first interested you about them? 
So for me, growing up, I've always been interested in wildlife. My parents actually helped run a country park. We started off, me and my dad, going up and doing some amphibian surveys, and my mum would join occasionally. And it so happened that we had great crested newts on site. So with them being a protected species, we had to obviously leave the site. And my dad got in contact with an expert on great crested newts for the amphibian and reptile conservation. And she came up with us to do a survey. I had never seen a, seen any amphibian apart from a common frog before. We went round, I think it was an hour and a half, seeing absolutely <laughs> nothing. It's usually the case in wildlife. And yeah. we got to this specific corner of the lake and she shouts, there's a great crested newt. My husband's slightly out of the way and drags me along <laughs> and points it out. And from the next day, it was like, amphibians are for me to go into and bought some books and literally from that moment onwards that was it for me it, it really hooked you at that it point really did, I, yeah. I mean and what a beautiful uh, great crested newts are aren't they? i know they're oh, so gorgeous. in danger but just beautiful in when you see one you know it's mm -hmm. just amazing isn't they it? really really are so you're currently studying at university aren't you yeah, I'm studying wildlife conservation. I'm in my second year now. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, good luck with that course. And, and from what you've already said, I think you're an absolute natural for this. And, it, and I wish you every success. What amphibians and reptiles are found in the UK? Could you give us just like a, a brief overview of some of the things that we're likely to see? I can, yeah. So in the UK, we have seven amphibians and six reptiles. So our seven amphibians are two newts, no, three newts, sorry, the smooth newt, palmer newt and great crested newt, toads, the natterjack toad and the common toad, and two full frog and the common frog, all of which are native. I'm not going to get into the non-natives. So our natterjack toad, northern pool frog and great crested newt are all protected and a license is required to disturb them in any form. We then have our six reptiles. So we have three snakes and three lizards. Our three snakes are the grass smooth snake and our three lizards are the slow worm, common lizard and sand lizard. Our adder has unfortunately undergone major decline due to fragmentation and our sand lizard and smooth snake is found south. So Surrey, Dorset, those areas only. So okay. they're our rarest. Right. Yeah, I'm very lucky to live in one of those areas where we <laughs> have smooth snakes. So I have yeah. seen them, which I know not everyone has been mm -hmm. lucky enough to do. Um, absolutely amazing. And we have sand lizards on some of the commons nearby, which amazing. is also a, a real treat, isn't it, uh, to see those. But also very much aware of what you were saying about adders and mm -hmm. the decline in adder populations yeah. all over the country is is and they are dangerous but they're certainly getting into trouble aren't they yeah there's a lot of cases of inbreeding again due to fragmentation and they're also obviously being our only venomous snake persecuted yeah um which there's no need for really you know they're not they're not going to come and attack you they're completely harmless and they will only bite if they are obviously threatened enough that's true and and that is the best advice isn't it if you mm -hmm. see one it doesn't want to be near you yeah. either does it no, wants to move it really away doesn't. 
But if you do get the chance to see one, just look at the amazing yeah, patterning on their backs and the colour. They, they really mm -hmm. are quite a range of colours, aren't they? Been lucky enough to see a black one as oh, well, nice. um, which is very well. I don't know how rare, but they're quite unusual yeah, at least, are. aren't they? And and they're just absolutely stunning. And I think most people, if you've seen a grass snake, are surprised at how tiny an adder is in yeah. comparison. Yeah, you don't expect it. You really don't. No, no I think we all have, like, obviously not native to Britain, but mm -hmm. you kind of have these images of huge snakes um, <laughs> that, that are kept in captivity mm -hmm. or, or are in other parts of the world. And yeah, here ours are, are actually, even the grass snake is still quite a small snake in reality. Yeah, it? it is. And again, another beautiful animal with amazing markings. Mm -hmm. But yeah. um, ah, sorry, I'm sidelined <laughs> a little bit there. <laughs> but I do, I, I do love amphib. Well, I love all wildlife, but amphibians and reptiles are massively underrepresented. Oh, they it's are. Just nice to have a chance to talk about them today. So thank you so much for running us through, uh, you know, all the species that are native here. So you're here today talking out as part of Knots Arg. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us a little bit about? ARG and what you do? Yes, so Nottinghamshire ARG is sort of an underbranch of the national organisation Amphibian and Reptile Group. So in most counties across the country there's a smaller group from that who basically aim to conserve and educate and get volunteers involved in the habitat management or the surveying of amphibians and reptiles. So for Nottinghamshire ARG, our educate and gain volunteers to help us on these surveys, toad patrols, um, scrub clearing. We do loads of things for our volunteers. We also help run events and go to events and have a store so people can chat to us and let us know of their sightings. So really our main um, goal and focus is to on these misrepresented species fantastic which is so important <clears throat> as as we've alluded isn't it but also sounds like good fun and and you're part of the community you're mm -hmm. you know at different events and yeah. and and getting out so how long has knots arg been running so knots arg has been going on since 2019 so just before okay. covid right um <laughs> So I wasn't part of it then. I only joined the committee last year. Did some voluntary work for them as COVID, you know, opened up and we were allowed to go out. But yeah. they we didn't they didn't really do much because of COVID really, which was obviously affected many groups. As of last year, we got some more committee members and it's starting to get a bit more oomph to it now. Yeah, I mean that that the uh, COVID came in at obviously completely the wrong time just as you were launching a for, for many reasons but obviously when you're launching a new group you don't need that to happen do you straight straight Not away ideal. almost and and although we'll cover it in more detail later but if people do want to volunteer or get involved in anything we're speaking about today yeah do you want to tell them how they would go about that straight away yeah so we've got a website called nottinghamshire amphibian and reptile group so you can find us through Google. We also have an Instagram called Knots Arg and a Facebook page called Nottinghamshire Amphibian and Reptile Group, along with a Twitter, 
called Knots Arg. So you can contact us on any of those things and we can direct you to one becoming a member or helping out. Or on our website we have a tab that called membership or you can and you can go straight through that. Oh, that's fantastic, Mayor. Thank you very much for that. We will cover it all again if you missed it and give you all of those uh, co- ways of contacting the group again later on. Okay, Mayor, so could you tell us a little bit about toads and what they do in the wild? Yes. So our common toads are, like all of our amphibians, are semi-aquatic and they also live on land, so they're terrestrial. So during breeding season, they will be in the ponds and they will be breeding away. Usually you could get up to hundreds or even thousands in one pond. Um, and their call is like a squeak. So if you hear like a squeaking noise and you don't know what it is, check the water body and you like... <laughs> um, So they are actually, do hold toxins for um, to make them distasteful to predators, such as like herons, fish, and it'll eat them. They are distasteful too. And so are their tadpoles. One way quickly to tell the difference between common toad and common frog spawn is that common toads lay and frogs lay them in clumps. So that's a nice way to tell if you've got toads or frogs breeding. So they're pretty widespread throughout the UK and they live in woodlands, grasslands. They can live in, well, they can like breed in murky water, but they do prefer clear water. So once they've bred, they will migrate onto land where they will forage for food like slugs and worms. Then winter comes and they'll be hibernating under log piles or in between rocks, anywhere that's nice and warm. So sort of at the very beginning of March, as the weather starts to get warmer, these toads come out of hibernation and start to migrate to those breeding ponds again. Now, unfortunately, like toads have declined significantly, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about later. And the reason for this is because when they're migrating, quite a cross busy major roads leading to mass casualties and getting squashed injured and that is the main reason for their decline in the UK so although they are widespread and quite common they have declined significantly due to them migrating over busy roads right I understand so migration is something the toads do they always go back to the pond that they were born in yeah so you usually see this with frogs very far but with toads it's usually just the closest water body so on a few of the surveys that i've done pretty much all of them really when it's toad season is you'll see these poor males sitting in puddles waiting for a female and they will literally just sit in any water body they can (laughs) Oh, <laughs> that's quite sad in some yeah. ways, isn't it? Another thing I did notice in, in when you were answering, and I just think it's maybe very important for mm-hmm. people in their own gardens. We all know how important having some water for all wildlife mm-hmm. is, be it a small pond or anything like that, is obviously really important when you're talking toads or frogs and other amphibians. Yep. Also, you mentioned log piles, which yes. is something that people are aware that they should do but maybe Mm -hmm. don't do as often as they should so is that for shelter yeah so for example in our garden when we've cut down the hedges or we've cut down some branches from the trees we'll create them so it can decompose and we have found toads in there and one because it's warm it's nice for hibernation but also 
their food is there. So food on your doorstep. A worm goes past and you're going to snatch it up. Um, always, always leave some log piles. Definitely. That, that is such a good uh, piece of advice you've given there, Mayor. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so, fantastic and absolutely true. And that should be a motto of this podcast because it's, it's what it's all about. Obviously, I can understand from what you've said that toads will, once they come from their winter... Is it hibernation? Because they kind of sit in bottom of the ponds for the winter. Yeah, so toads, typically you find on land, but frogs will certainly stay clearing your pond out. You're likely to find them, you know, in there. But yeah, toads migrate quite quite long distances. But primarily on land? Yeah, so... In the log piles or... Typically, yeah. like, another way you, quickly you can tell between toad and frog is because frogs have quite a wet slimy skin but it's the only way you can describe it they have yeah. to stay near a water body for that skin to not dry up whereas toads they're quite more of their time on land than they do in water so toads are rough dry and warty whereas frogs are smooth and quite shiny looking yeah now i understand that that's a really good way of remembering because i'm clearly getting a bit mixed up between my toads and frogs aren't i as we're going along as well so the toads are, are migrating in often in quite big numbers mm -hmm. and yeah. clearly toads do not know anything about roads and <laughs> traffic and all the new roads that we're constantly building i understand then why tow patrols are needed i mean could you talk us through a tow patrol and like what actually happens when you're doing one yeah so for toad patrols is because toads have declined by i can give you the figure is 60 percent in the last 30 years oh my goodness that's shocking yes. isn't it and frog life estimated that over 20 tons of toads are killed each year on roads. Oh, God. Yeah. Right. It's a massive... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> if I put you on the spot, I'm sorry, but how much does one toad weigh, approximately? <laughs> I do know the answer. So no. it's around 7 to 8 grams is a male. But to get 20 tons of animals yeah. that are sort of 7 to 15 grams is thousands, Each isn't it? year as well, like, that's a lot. Yeah. It is. It is an awful lot. So clearly one of the solutions is to put these tow patrols in place. Yes. So when you're doing a tow patrol, obviously your safety is number one priority because you are on a road. Sometimes they're not busy, but sometimes they're very busy. Okay. So because of your safety, never put yourself in any danger over a toad as, as horrible as it is to see a toad get squashed you also don't want to get squashed no no so other ways to stay safe are to wear a high-vis vest or jacket or full high-vis for so yeah. that you're visible to the drivers yeah a torch is also needed one so that you can see the toads but also two it's also more awareness for the drivers if a car is coming past to step out of the way and lower your torch um because you don't obviously want to distract those people in the car so safety once you've you know done all your safety and everything is also i should mention is to make sure that if you're going out alone we don't advise it but if you are going out alone to when you've left when you've got the site and once you've got home because obviously anything can happen on a road so yes, that's good advice definitely yeah <laughs> we don't want anything bad to happen no so when we're actually on a toad patrol you know 
we have our buckets so usually it's a bucket per person but obviously this all depends but your bucket and your torch and you're scanning the road for any amphibians that might be crossing sometimes you get juveniles so looking out for tiny little amphibians as well when you do see them you pick them up and pop them in your bucket and you continue your way up the road always put in those that you're seeing either on the verge that they're moving from into the bucket and on the road into the bucket you do this a couple of times then what you do is with the toads or amphibians that are in your bucket you put them onto the next safest verge that they're migrating towards um because obviously you don't want to put them on the side that they're coming from because they'll go back over yeah so you either put them on the safest verge or in some cases you can actually get to the ponds themselves which if you can is better because they're less likely to turn around but basically picking them out of the buckets and gently placing them either on the grass verge or the verge or into the ponds then going back out to the road and doing it a couple more times we don't you don't have to go out every night you can go out once a month if you saved a toad you've saved a toad you know it one toad's better than it being squashed if you don't want to go out for two hours then you also don't have to you can go out for 30 minutes 15 minutes it's entirely voluntary so you can spend as long as you like out there i know for myself and my parents we we're lucky and we kind of live in sort of a circulation of them so we can start at one and finish at another and then the next one the next one and we usually do four or five in one night and then come back home but obviously you don't have to do that. You can just do one for 15 minutes and that would perfectly help. It sounds really exciting thing to do. Helping toads is obviously the top priority as well as keeping safe. Mm -hmm. but, but also it sounds like something you can actually, and clearly you and your parents enjoy by, by doing a few in a night near you. Do not say, oh, gee, do training or anything for people who might be interested in so because we've only been doing it well we've been doing it for a few years but last year is when we sort of really picked it up and i took it on is what we usually do is rather than train people you know like what's a toad and how to do it we have a whatsapp group chat that people are on yeah so we sort of do a debrief at the beginning of the year and then if some new people come along then we try and pair them with someone who's already done it okay so that sort of in-field training I guess just so that they know what to expect and what to do um, and what we actually find is people bring along their friends and then their friends get addicted to it and then yeah. they become a toad patroller so there's no training as such but we do pet try to pair or get you out with people who have also done it before yeah, I, I can say, obviously, you're supporting them all from the first contact, getting mm -hmm. them on the group. And it's actually can be quite social in your yeah. immediate area or community, mm -hmm. you know, be in a town, city or wherever you are or in the country. There's lots of opportunities, really, just to get out and do something good with your friends and neighbours. You mentioned that, obviously, you, you do a few, but people can do as long or as little as they want mm -hmm. and everything that they do do helps oh, which yeah. is really important if somebody's listening to this and they're like oh, i really want to do that this year then how would they get in touch with you in nottingham so for us you can contact us via social media etc or we do have a specific email so the email is knotsargtoadpatrols at hotmail.com if you email that you can either be put onto the mailing list 
or if you send your number we can add you to the whatsapp group where you can meet like-minded people join people and you also get to see some cute photos of amphibians so oh <laughs> sign me out I mean, what, what more could you want after that that's brilliant i mean i don't know if you know the answer but approximately how many tow patrols do you have throughout nottinghamshire so it isn't that many we have one that's been going on for a few years and that one gets all four amphibians we have oh. most of them though tend to be in the middle of nottingham so another way that we're asking people to help is if you don't fancy you know coming and helping the toads themselves is notifying us of any potential toad crossings so if you're driving along and you see toads crossing to email us and let us know because we can set that up as a site itself oh fantastic yeah like you were saying it's only been a, a couple of years really with the disruptions that you've been going to to, to be in double figures of sites after a relatively short period of time yes. is amazing but also really important for the general public who might just see toads crossing to let you know in in the way you've said and i will get you to just to repeat that email again in a minute That's but fine. um but that is how you're going to find where they're crossing you know in the places that maybe you don't know at this moment in time mm -hmm. it happens yeah. so that's really important isn't it yeah it really and anyone is. can do that yeah exactly and even things like you know if you see a toad crossing sign or you see some people with hivers on to slow down yeah because you'll be surprised how often nobody cares and you've got 20 people on the side of the road and they're zooming past so i think i'm pretty sure that's probably no one in listening to this but it's just a slow down and you know take yeah abs absolutely i mean we've all got busy lives but really you know just show some mm -hmm. consideration for the other things that we share the planet with it, yeah. it's not going to slow you down a lot uh you mentioned tow patrol signs now i've yes. seen in a village near to me there are actually i think all year round the signs are up you know mm -hmm. they're like normal road signs but they've just got the toad on there but i've also seen temporary signs yes. that they kind of put up when they're doing mm -hmm. them uh, obviously the the fixed ones i guess are down to the council's yeah. thing so <laughs> not not anything to do with us do you as a group would you like help them find where to get the signs or uh, you know in anything like that if if it was a set patrol so for us at the moment we're actually looking into this because there's a few sign sites that have signs that probably could do without the signs yeah and then we've got some sites that could really do with the signs so we are actually looking into this at the moment i know some groups have asked the council to pop up just metal poles for them and then they attach their own signs to them as and when they need to and then obviously like you mentioned you've got some signs that um are permanent they stay there yeah so i don't know the answer at this very point but it is something that we are looking into so if it's something that people are interested in they're like contact us and we can try and work it out with you yeah i think i'm right in saying this is like a seasonal event isn't it it's not an ongoing event through the year yeah so it usually lasts two three weeks at most frogs and toads are explosive breeders in nature you know you you can go from one night having no frogs to having 20 30 frogs 
it, oh, it's such a joy when they return. <laughs> like one of the, I think, oh, this is this is just fantastic, and it's a great way to spend an evening mm -hmm. just watching or few evenings. And it is, like you said, a two to three week event. Yes. And obviously, nature is never specific; it doesn't have a calendar or a, or a watch or anything. But approximately, when would we be expecting to see this happening? So obviously, like you mentioned, it all depends on weather. But on average, it tends to be the two last weeks of February or the two first weeks of March. Any time between that frame seems to be the trend at the moment. This year might be different because obviously we've had some milder weather, then some cold weather, and it looks like it's going to start getting mild again. So it might change. But typically it is those two last weeks of Feb, two beginning weeks of right. March. Oh, that's brilliant. That is a message for all drivers mm -hmm. to be watching out at that time. But also, if somebody is really liking what they're hearing, and I can't for one moment think why they wouldn't be, and they want to do this, and they're in Nottinghamshire, yes. could you just give us your contact details one more time, just so they can get their pen and papers ready and, yes. and write it down? So if you want to directly email our Toad Patrol email, the email address is knotsargtoadpatrols at hotmail.com or you can contact us on our Instagram, which is just knotsarg. You can also contact us via Facebook, which is Nottinghamshire Amphibian and Reptile Group or we do have a Twitter as well, which is knotsarg11. That's fantastic. Thank you for that, Mayor. So if a lot of our listeners obviously are all around the UK and, and many actually are um, not even in the UK, but mm -hmm. initially if, if somebody is interested in, in becoming a tow patroller but they're not in Nottingham, who would they contact if that were the case? So there are a couple of organisations that you can contact. There's Frog Life, which are actually the organisation that I believe are the ones that set it all up. Um, and many ARGs use their website to pinpoint where their patrols are. So you can go on to type in Frog Life Toad Patrols and it will give you a load of information on toad patrols and you can also find your local toad patrol through that or you can go through your local, local ARG groups. So if you go onto the Amphibian and Reptile Group website, there'll be a section that you can find where your local um, group is, contact them and I've not heard of any group turning down a toad patroller or a volunteer before. So sounds sounds great and good fun. And you know you're helping wildlife. Mm -hmm. it, it's I can't think of a better way to spend an evening, to be honest. Obviously it's a UK wide yeah. issue. Internationally, mm -hmm. is is it something that's recognized in Europe and beyond? So as far as I know, and I've done a bit of research into this, is the UK is the only country to do toad crossings officially under you know that however i do know that in europe in america and basically across you know the globe people do notice that even salamanders newts turtles are crossing roads during certain times so people do go out and volunteer on these roads to help Great. but it is a recognized things that roads are a barrier to amphibians and obviously other wildlife but in the UK, I think, as far as I'm aware, obviously, we have those local groups that go out that are organised. It's nice to know that in the UK, we're leading a little bit yeah. by having a more organised structure mm -hmm. than 
many of the other countries. That's encouraging, and it, I think, just shows that we're doing something really good. Um, yeah, it, I thought it must be a global issue. It can't just be a UK, <laughs> but I've never heard of anything outside mm -hmm. of the UK or anything. All right. Oh, look, Maya, thank you so much for telling us all about Tow Patrols today. I think you're going to get a lot of interest and response because it's been fascinating to learn about them and also how we can all get involved in helping mm -hmm. our local toads as well. So that is great. So one of the things we like to do on the Wildlife Matters podcast is just to ask you a couple of questions. They're, they're not linked to toads or even specifically wildlife. So my question for you today is that if you had to eat only one meal for the whole of 2024, what would it be and why would you choose it? I think it would have to be spicy tomato pasta. Oh, yeah. It, you know, <laughs> it's warm and comforting. It's a really good choice, I have to say. Mm. I think I could eat that for a long time yeah. before I was getting a little bit like, mm, <laughs> could do with a change. <laughs> it's a really good way. It's a fun question. It's, okay, and our final one is, what is the one thing that needs to change to help toads in Britain? And do you think it's likely to happen in the next five years? I think, personally, for me, I think it's education educating people on the importance of toads uh, but also amphibians and reptiles for me education is definitely the way forward educating people the fact that they're not they're not going to give you warts and that they're actually a beneficial species in our ecosystem eating those pests that you know everybody doesn't like slugs and snails if people are the decline wouldn't happen so rapidly and Everyone that I've spoken to adores toads. You know, ever the toad posts do the best. Well, they're beautiful animals, and mm -hmm. and I know you've just addressed one of the biggest misconceptions that they'll give you warts, <laughs> which isn't true. But I I do agree with you. Education is so important, yes. and. I actually feel, honestly, I think you've done an amazing job in educating our listeners today into a bit about toads, why they are so important, mm -hmm. and also how we can help them, you know, through these things like the migration, but a little bit of habitat work and everything. Yeah. And there's loads more that we could talk about and maybe we should get you back on there to talk about other things you know in a bit more of a deep dive into the future I'd because be it's been really informative and just really want to say thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today on the wildlife matters podcast and thank you very much mayor for being with us today you're welcome thank you for having okay. me so wasn't that wonderful to hear from Maya today? I think you, like me, would have learned so much from her. Uh, a real inspiration to get out there and join Toad Patrols and get involved with your local amphibian and reptile group. If you are in Nottinghamshire and you want to go along and volunteer with the Knots ARG and help Maya help those toads across the road this year, then do drop her an email. That email address is knotsargtoadpatrols at hotmail.com. That's knotsargtoadpatrols at hotmail.com. And somebody will get back to you very soon. 
Well, wasn't that fascinating? Our huge thanks to Maya for joining us. And I am already so looking forward to having Maya return for a deeper dive into the UK's native amphibians in the future. Now, of course, today is St. Valentine's Day, a day for romance and showing your appreciation for your partner or someone you would like to be your partner. Wildlife Matters thought that sharing some of the bizarre ways that wildlife attracts partners and the frankly kinky ways some wildlife gets it on were worth a closer look. So let's look, not in a voyeuristic way, at some of the weird ways that wildlife gets it on. And welcome back. And of course, today is Valentine's Day. Very exciting for so many of you. So on the Wildlife Matters podcast, we thought let's just take a look at the quirky ways that wildlife get it on. In today's world where dating apps and swiping left or right have taken over the romantic landscape, finding the one has become a top priority for many. But did you know that humans are not the only ones who crave companionship? Many creatures in the natural world also seek a partner and go to great lengths to find one. From faithful swans and wolves to solitary pine martins and sexton beetles that bury small animal carcasses, the animal kingdom is full of fascinating tales of love and survival. Take the adder for an example. When searching for a mate, they shed their skin to reveal a shiny new coat and they use their tongue to woo their female counterparts. The pine martin, a fiercely territorial animal, has only a few days when the female is receptive to mating. But the sexton beetle takes the cake when it comes to unique mating habits. You see, they use food, often in the form of animal carcasses, to bond with their partner. Within an hour of death, they locate a corpse up to two miles away, bury it, strip away the fur or feathers, and then douse it with an antibacterial secretion to slow down decomposition. Talk about a macabre way to show affection. So, whether it's staying with one partner for life or changing partners, wildlife will go to great lengths to ensure the continuation of their species. Who knew that the animal kingdom was so full of love and drama? The world of wildlife certainly has a unique approach to courtship. There is no one-size-fits-all approach. What works best can differ for each species. So, if you don't conform to the traditional idea of being with only one partner, take heart. You're in good company with some of the most fascinating creatures out there. If you believe in magic, you could try ornithomancy predicting your future partner based on the first bird you see on Valentine's Day morning. Seeing a sparrow might indicate a future with someone poor. 
while spotting a goldfinch could mean you'll hit the jackpot with a millionaire. If a robin flies overhead, it's believed that you'll end up with a sailor, whilst a blackbird is said to predict that you'll marry a vicar. A flock of doves might suggest a long and happy marriage, but if you spot an owl or a woodpecker, you're thought to be destined to stay single. For the brave-hearted, there is the tradition of heading to the local graveyard at midnight on the 13th of February to conjure up a ghostly vision of the person that you will go on to marry. This involves running around the church 12 times whilst chanting a poem. We won't share that with you today, but if you're feeling adventurous, you can certainly give it a try. Roses are always a popular gift on Valentine's Day, but did you know the colour of the roses you receive could hold some significance? You see, if your partner presents you with a big bunch of roses on Valentine's Day, here are some of the secrets they could reveal. Red roses symbolise eternal love and passion while pink roses signify admiration and appreciation, perfect for the early days of a relationship. Yellow roses are the perfect way to show your friendship and happiness, whilst orange roses symbolise desire and enthusiasm. And if you're looking for something genuinely enchanting, lilac roses represent love at first sight. But roses aren't the only way to predict your romantic future. According to legend, twisting the stem of an apple while reciting the names of potential spouses can reveal the name of your future partner. And if you want to know how many children you'll go on to have, count the seeds inside the apple. People have also turned to herbs and spices for romantic guidance for centuries. Placing a sprig of fragrant rosemary under your pillow might reveal the identity of your future spouse in your dreams. And if you want to know if your crush sent you that mysterious Valentine's card, try placing a slip of paper with the names of your prospective partners under your pillow and reciting a poem. Whether you're a hopeless romantic or a skeptic, these old-fashioned love traditions will pique your interest. However, if you plan spending your Valentine's Day sipping champagne with your significant other, or binge eating chocolates in bed with your cat, some members of the animal kingdom are sacrificing their lives in the name of love. Let's look at some of the unusual ways that wildlife gets it on. From kinky spider bondage to death-inducing foreplay, it dives into the fascinating, depraved world of animal mating rituals. You see, humans aren't the only species that like to get a little rough in the bedroom sometimes. The mating ritual of nursery spiders is downright kinky. Before courting, the male presents the female with a gift of an insect wrapped up in a web. But once his gift is accepted, things get a little bit more X-rated. 
The male nursery web spiders will bond their female partners by tying the female's front legs with silken cords before mating. This ritual is performed by only some males, actually decreases the chance of the female eating them right after mating. Yes, this is a thing that happens, since first she would have to free herself. The bondage might also help the male get a second mating, as the female can't run off or eat him after the first encounter, increasing his chances of becoming a dad. These cords are known as bridal veils. But nursery web spiders aren't the only species of spider to tie up their partner. But they are perhaps the only spider that may add pheromones to the cords, making the female more interested in mating. Male honeybees sacrifice their lives for the chance of becoming a dad. They can mate with the queen bee on average seven to ten times in mid-flight before their endophallus or penis is finally ripped off of their body. The endophallus stays inside the queen bee until the next male comes along and either is futile in his attempted entry or removes the previous male's tissue so he can mate with the queen. As the previous male, as for the previous male though, he's doomed. When the endophallus is torn off, the male's abdomen rips open and he'll die shortly afterwards. Interestingly, but less gruesome, queen honeybees have only one mating flight. Still, they mate with several males during this time and can store between five and six million sperm within their spermatica. Anglerfish take the phrase, till death do us part, to a whole new level. Finding a mate in a deep ocean can be challenging, especially because the males are much smaller than the females. However, when a male anglerfish finds a female, he bites into her and never lets go for the rest of his life. Talk about an inseparable bond. He even becomes part of her circulatory system and feeds on her blood to survive. But wait, there's more. Most land snails are hermaphrodites, which means they have both male and female sexual organs and can reproduce as either. Some species even have a love dart. Yes, you heard that right. A love dart, which is a sword made of calcium that they use to stab other snails, transferring sperm-boosting secretions. However, this love dart can reduce fertility in the long term and cause severe injury or even death. Researchers found that stabbed snails only lived around three quarters as long as those who had not been penetrated and laid fewer eggs. With such high costs to the snails, it's a wonder why they even evolved these weapons. But the love dart discourages the stab snail from mating with anyone else, whether that's because of the secretions or because of the intense pain of being stabbed with a love dart, ensuring the stabber that his genes will be passed on to the offspring. Male pufferfish are alluring artists of the marine world. They create 
intricate circular patterns on the seafloor to attract females by using their fins and bodies to move sand and to develop ridges. Then they decorate their nests with pieces of shell and coral, hoping to appeal to the aesthetic desires of a female puffer fish. It takes the male seven to ten days to complete his unique nest. If a female appears and decides the design is to her liking, she will lay her eggs in the middle of it and then take off. Females usually choose males with the most intricate and extensive nests, typically created by the most vigorous males. The process of male water striders is known to be sexually immoral amongst insects. Female water striders have a genital shield which functions as a chastity belt to prevent males from mating with them unless they want to. However, some male water striders use coercion until they consent to mate with them. Water striders move on water surfaces due to surface tension and can sense predators or prey by vibrations in the water. Some male water striders employ this tapping to attract predators by hopping on the female's back and tapping vigorously at the water's surface. Since the female is on the water with the male on her back, she is much more vulnerable to being eaten by predators. So consequently, the female gives in and opens her genital shield, allowing the male to mate with her. After fertilization, the male water strider has to take care of the eggs until they hatch six days later. Following hatching, the male leaves to build a new nest and will repeat the process again. And finally, let's look at St. Valentine's Day origins and some folklore. Some believe it is celebrated in remembrance of St. Valentine's death. In contrast, others will tell you that it is an attempt by the Christian church to Christianize the pagan festival of Lupercalia. Lupercalia was a Roman fertility festival held on the 15th of February in honor of Phanos, the god of agriculture, and the founders of Rome, Romulus and Remus. During the festival, Roman priests would gather at a sacred cave where Romulus and Remus were believed to have been cared for by the she-wolf. They would then sacrifice a goat and use its hide to slap women, which was believed to bring fertility in the coming year. And if that isn't weird enough, there's more. Later in the day, all the young women in the city would put their names into a big urn. The city's bachelors would each select a name from the urn and the two would be paired up for the year. So was that the beginning of partner swapping? During the Middle Ages, people in France and England believed February the 14th was the beginning of the birds mating season. This added to the idea that Valentine's Day should be a day of romance. The English poet Geoffrey Chaucer was the first to mention St. Valentine's Day as a romantic celebration in his poem, The Parliament of Fowls, where he wrote, 
For this was sent on St. Valentine's Day, when every fowl cometh to choose his mate. Valentine's greetings were popular as far back as the Middle Ages, though written Valentines didn't appear until after 1400. The oldest known Valentine still in existence today was a poem written in 1415 by Charles, the Duke of Orleans, to his wife while he was imprisoned in the Tower of London following his capture at the Battle of Agincourt. The greeting is now part of the manuscript collection of the British Library in London. Several years later, it is believed that King Henry V hired a writer named John Lydgate to compose a Valentine's note to Catherine of Velo. So, there you have it, the fascinating history behind Valentine's Day. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Look at Love in the Wildlife World. And whatever you decide to do on the 14th of February, we hope you enjoy your St. Valentine's Day with someone special. Well, I do hope you enjoy peeping into the bizarre and quirky sex lives of some wildlife species. Still, I wouldn't suggest trying those things out on a prospective or indeed existing partner unless you want to spend Valentine's evening alone. I still haven't recovered from the male honeybee story yet, but Wildlife Matters will return in two weeks when we will be speaking to Deborah from hedge pigs and finding out much more about hedgehogs so if you have enjoyed today's show please subscribe and follow us on your podcast platform of choice and don't forget to like or share our social media you will find the wildlife matters organization on all major podcast and social media platforms but for now thank you for your time and for choosing to listen to us today. My name is Nigel Palmer and this is Wildlife Matters signing off.